Untie the boat, let the wind blow you where the wind blows. Knot by knot, let the cords unravel, let the corpse travel on its course. Knot by knot, time will sow you across the fields of endless forms. Now you're on your way in the sacred. Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda. This is a podcast about MDMA-assisted therapy. And today we are talking with Rick Doblin. Of course, Rick doesn't need an introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Rick is a founder and president of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Rick is an incredible character, a man completely dedicated to his mission. He uh, dedicated most of his life to bringing MDMA-assisted therapy to the public as a healing method. He's a great success story. He took a drug that was banned in 1985, I think, and then in 86 he started his nonprofit MAPS. His vision is very close to being realized, and after 37 years of his relentless pursuit, all that Rick wants is to himself become a psychedelic psychotherapist and to serve those in need. Here we go, Rick Dublin. I think we should start with acknowledging the, the victims of the senseless violence in the recent war. Yeah, uh-huh. I wonder if you'd like to say a word about that. Yeah. Well, you know, MAPS is committed to healing trauma and multi-generational trauma on all sides. So um, we had, um, through MAPS Israel, we were about to have a training of Israeli and Palestinian therapists. A group of Palestinian therapists did come to the Psychedelic Science 2023 in June in Denver, and we were about to start training uh, Palestinian therapists. And uh, that's been postponed by the war. We've got four Lebanese therapists that we're doing a training in Iceland the first week in November. And we're not sure if they're still going to be able to come, but we're hoping they are. So these were after years and years and years, decades of trying to really start work um, in Arab countries or with you know, Palestinians that, that we were getting really close. And I think that was really why Hamas did this, um, terrorism, not because we were getting close, but because there was these, um, potential peace negotiations between the U S Saudi Arabia and, um, Israel and uh, the larger Arab world. And so Hamas wanted to, uh, destroy those uh, peace efforts, which they have succeeded in doing beyond their wildest expectations. Mm. Um, and so I think there is this um, otherizing of people, this uh, commitment to uh, destroying people. You know, Hamas's charter is about destroying the state of Israel. Um, and so the hope is with psychedelic therapy or other means that people understand that we're all in it together and that, that we need to have, um, you know, le- less fear of people that are different from us. I, I also think yeah. that... Um, on the the one hand that we talk about religious fundamentalists in Hamas that are, you know, committed to the destruction of Israel, we've got Orthodox Jewish fundamentalists that are also, um, you know, a serious threat to the human rights of the Palestinians. Right. Yes. So um, it's not, yeah. I don't want to say moral equivalent, but there's people on all sides that are really doing the opposite of working towards peace. Yes. And this therapy, this yeah. therapy is about facilitating love and connection, but it does seem that the trend recently has been towards polarization and conflict. And, you know, I just wonder what are your thoughts, just kind of general broad thoughts on the kind of, whether it's cultural change or, yeah. or just the change in mindset that, uh, that, that you know that needs to happen to bring more love and connection to the world 
Yeah, I feel like um, metaphorically you could say um, it's like we're trying to light a candle of healing in a hurricane blizzard of pain and new trauma. Mm, very good. But nice, nice we, metaphor. We just have to do what we can do. And hopefully over time, you know, these little flames will, of healing will grow. Um, mm -hmm. And we are now um, trying to think about um, group therapy because of the scale of the number of people that are traumatized, not just, you know, recently in Israel, but also in Palestine and also all over the world. Um, we are starting to try to do two studies in Israel. One would be uh, group therapy for people that were survivors of the Nova, the supernova raid. And the other would be group therapy for survivors from the kibbutzim okay. attacks. And so the idea would be to take people that were traumatized at the same time and see if we can accelerate and scale the training by working with them in groups. Okay. And that's people like Karen and, 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 and others. Yeah, Karen and Ido. Karen. So we're working with them to try and to Ido, yes. Um, you know, they're yeah. they're um, working with the Ministry of Health, and we're we're trying to see how quickly we could design protocols or get them uh, expedited. Um, but I think that there's um, you know threats all over for the simplistic solutions totalitarian people out of fears and anxieties are motivated to do um, appeal to strong people, vote for strong men, you know, be willing to overthrow democracy, um, you know, go for totalitarian solutions. And so it, it, I think it's this critical need to help people learn how to better process fears and anxieties. So they don't mm -hmm. sort of either, uh, well, well, Carl Jung said something amazing. He said that, uh, well, many things, but what he said was that the, the most important political, therapeutic, and spiritual work we can do is to withdraw the projection of our shadow onto others. Right, right. So those parts of ourselves that we disown, we tend to place them on other people, the classic idea of the right. scapegoat. Um, and so I which, think Which that, reminds me of your, of your concept of inner Hitler. Yes. And your experience of inner Hitler, that's sort of related to this. Very much so, very much so. That, that was a hard uh, trip for me, you know, that, that recognition mm -hmm. that if mm -hmm. everything is part of me and I'm part of everything, I can't just pick the good parts, that, that Hitler is part right. of me as well, and that I have to understand how to work with those parts of me that are uh, wanting to squash and kill people that are different. Um, it, so they're all part of us. It's about what we activate or what we exactly. embody. So we all have all these potentials, but what do we actually embody? And so I think there's a, a deeper understanding once you recognize that, that none of us are, it's not black and white. None of us are all perfect or good or, um, right. and that we have to be very aware of our tendencies towards this kind of, uh, diminishing, otherizing, um, scapegoating others, um, and I think the therapy tools uh, and the psychedelics and med meditation, all, all sorts of things are um, tools in this process. But what, what it does seem, well, I'll give another good example. This was actually years ago with another war in Gaza. So we were doing work in Israel at uh, Bir Yaakov Mental Health Center, the largest mental health uh, center in Israel. It's um, a little bit south of Tel Aviv. And there was this one man that had PTSD from uh, actually from 1973, from the, the Yom Kippur War. And he was still able to get better, but he had a really difficult experience. And during it, he felt that he needed to just walk around outside. So he walked around outside of this hospital setting. There was a tree, sort of hugged the tree, got grounded. He, he, he got ready, went back in and he made some you know, important breakthroughs once he back, went back in. But while he was outside with the tree, planes were flying overhead to bomb Gaza. And it just felt again, like here we're trying to help hmm. individuals, but society as a whole is just making <clears throat> there's, hundreds of thousands of more trauma victims. There's, there's the candle in the, in the, in the storm. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think, you know, how, how else do you succumb uh, how else do you avoid succumbing to depression? Um, it's by trying to, you know, create light in the darkness. And so that's right. what we need right. to continue to do. And, 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 the, the, and this therapy, 
uh, MDMA therapy, you know, I've been a psychotherapist for a long time, and the MDMA therapy, more than any other therapy, is really oriented towards a full acceptance of our inner landscape, including all the all those parts of us that are uh, like an inner Hitler and all those parts that we might not be as as uh, as proud of and feel so good about, but they are there. And it's extremely important that we come to connection with those parts so that we do not have to project those parts onto others so that we don't have to act uh, unconsciously on those those kind of dark sides of us. Yeah, you know, we, we do a fair amount of work with veterans in, in the United States and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, just to say that most of the people that we work with are women. Two-thirds of the people in our studies are women. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the people traumatized are women with uh, sexual abuse or domestic violence. But the veterans get a lot of the uh, media attention. And so most people think, oh, we're just working with veterans. Mm-hmm. But th- this is now a veteran story. So he was kind of a special operator for which uh, at different times in his work, he had to um, you know, pretend to be other people or so, you know, mm-hmm. assume different identities. And uh, what he said is that in the okay. past, whenever he was doing therapy, it was him in the chair with the therapist and he wasn't able to make any progress. But under the influence of MDMA, it was him and all these other identities that he had had to uh, assume in his uh special operating career and they were all in the room together with him with the therapist and finally when all these disowned parts were all back together finally he could make progress Mm, mm, that's great that's yeah it was really amazing and i think that is one of the big um yeah properties of mdma it's integrative and it it, it's It's integrative yes yeah, it really helps. And so we did show, by the way, in our phase three studies that people on the dissociative subtype. So one of the main you know, strategies when you get tra- traumatized is to dissociate. You're not really there. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it, it can be so painful or so difficult. You just escape in your mind. And, um, but that makes it particularly hard to heal because whenever you start getting back um, associated with, with what happened, it feels overwhelming. And, and, and so then yeah. people dissociate again. So we do enroll people on the dissociative subtype. Um, we, we don't enroll people what are called DID, dissociative identity disorders, disorders, you know, very frank split personalities in that way. Um, but we do people high on the dissociative subtype. And what we showed is that those people actually get better, more benefit on average than the rest of the people in the study. That's, that's incredible because it's so difficult to treat people with dissociative symptoms. Yes, yes. In fact, that's, that's incredible, one of the things Rick. that Bessel yeah. van der Kolk, there's a paper that he's working on about um, our phase three data that's going to come out that's, pretty soon. And that's, that's, that's incredible. Let me just add here because, you know, in exposure therapy, you do exposure, meaning you try to bring those 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 uh, disowned memories and those those difficult feelings that come with those memories forth, so that people can process them. However, there is always a caveat when you learn about exposure therapy that if people have a a strong dissociative experience in uh, in the session of those dissociative predispositions, then you do all kinds of other other work and you avoid the 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 exposure. So if MDMA therapy can actually allow the exposure for those people with strong emotions that foster these dissociative tendencies, that's just mind-blowing on its own. These are the people that suffer the most from trauma. Yeah, yeah, and it does seem to be the case that, that these people are, they're so hungry for that need to, to connect the different parts of themselves that once the MDMA helps them to do that, they can mm. make you know, more rapid progress. The, the other thing about the exposure therapy is the Veterans Administration um, published a paper last year about a study in 914 veterans and half of them about received uh, prolonged exposure and the other half mm-hmm. received cognitive processing therapy. And it took them about six years to do the study. It was a very, very large study. Um, and they were comparing two different psychotherapies. So these were not people on medications. But what they showed is that the therapy was so re-traumatizing to people that about 50% of the people in each 
group dropped out. So half the people dropped out because the therapy itself was so re-traumatizing. It was so difficult. What's the percentage of people in your phase three MDMA therapy studies that dropped out? Um, in our second phase three study, it was 1.9%. As opposed so, to 50% in the best, most established therapy treatment modalities, which is deep, uh, deep, deep processing and uh, cognitive processing therapy. Yes, yes, yes. So that's, inc- that's another like incredible result. Yeah, th- there's another um, interesting point is that there was this one woman, uh, this, this I think will explain why. In, in a sense, by metaphorically, at least there, there was this woman that had tried everything and was very suicidal. And so when she approached this, our, uh, our study, she said that um, this was her last hope. And that if it didn't work, she was going to go to Nepal and commit suicide. So mm. this is not, I don't know why it was Nepal, but she was going to go to Nepal and to commit mm. suicide if this therapy didn't work. And So what uh, the doctor, Michael Midhofer, um, shared is that during her first session, this is just like an hour after she took the MDMA. So she's just starting to feel the MDMA, Mm. maybe a little bit longer after that. But she's just in the Mm. early stages of feeling the MDMA. And she turned to Michael and Annie and she said, well, I don't think I'm going to have to go to Nepal anymore. Mm. And that was before she really did a lot of the therapy work. There was just just something. about the MDMA that helped her realize that she could have a different relationship to these traumatic memories and that they didn't have to overwhelm her, but that she could kind of process and let it out. And that that would be linked to survival, that that would mean that she would not need to kill herself. Even before she started doing a lot of the therapy, just this internal, um, different way to navigate with MDMA. Just the shift in, in the total shift in perception that MDMA gives you in the relationship to yourself, in the relationship to those difficult feelings yeah. and all that. That's yes. spectacular. Rick, maybe briefly, we don't have to spend huge amounts of time, maybe we can briefly go to this study. Uh, this is a big, this is really a big moment. Uh, this is the last of the studies that were required on your very long journey to bring MDMA-assisted therapy to, for medical use, medical legalization. This is the last study. All the data is in spectacular results. Before we talk about, about the study itself, I just wonder, you've been on this journey for 37 years. How are you doing at this moment of your journey? Well, I'm, um, I'm not quite as uh, into the celebration mode as you might think. Um, mm. the, the reason I would say is that, you know, we still don't have FDA approval that that's yes. sort of the key turning point. And so we think that that may happen in June of 2024, right around that time. So we think the first couple of weeks in December of this year, we're going to submit the data to the FDA for the start of what's called the new drug application, the mm-hmm. NDA process. And because we have a breakthrough therapy and it's, we, we get expedited review. So it's a six month review process. Uh, the clock stops whenever the FDA asks questions, but we've got a team of over 100 people to rapidly respond to their questions. So what what one of the reasons that I didn't burn out after all these 37 and a half years since I started MAPS and, and really, um, you know, I first learned about MDMA in 1982, in September of 1982. And so that's where I really recognized that I would, uh, that this was something new and something amazing, and that I would, uh, this would be a vehicle to try to uh, really renew uh, psychedelic research and, and, and start trying to do this psychedelic renaissance. But what I, what I, the reason I didn't burn out is I, I didn't try to get ahead of myself, mm. you know, so that there'd be all these setbacks all the time and stuff. But I just sort of like, well, you know, I, I hadn't baked in my mind, oh, we're, we're way ahead now. And now this is a setback. And so just thinking, you know, that uh, it is, we are in a great spot, but there, there's a, a, an old medieval saying that there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. Mm. So many a slip between the cup and the lip. So you, you think you've got it done. You're just about to drink something and then you spill it all over mm. yourself. I'll have my sip of coffee now. Let's see if it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But, but the, the thing, sorry, is that, yeah, that, that, you know, 
you take your eye off the ball and at the very last minute you could lose the whole thing i know i know and i was even watching recently like a couple of news items one was this what's the name of the psychologist in bc you know that it's it's on the news because she just surrendered her license and another thing just yesterday was this pilot and he's claiming that he did some mushrooms two days before right 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 well that i mean that who knows what happened to him but he probably did have a difficult mushroom experience and it probably you know I, i wouldn't be surprised people do take mushrooms and they're unprepared for the depth of things that happens. They're just trying to do it for fun. And which I do want to talk about the importance of therapy, but do you have it in you to briefly review the study? There's the safety. Oh yeah. And there's the effectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. I I would be very much interested in doing that. All right. So um, we have um, two phase three studies that we've um, completed. Um, But, but before that, I just want to say that um, the November 29th, 2016 is when we had what's called the end of phase two meeting. And that's where you bring your data forward to the FDA and you make the case that you want to go to phase three. And so we we were approved to go to phase three. But then I knew that um, there's some serious methodological challenges. Basically, how do you do a double blind study with a drug like MDMA or like LSD or like mushrooms or anything like that, that has such a strong psychological effect that uh, not many people are going to confuse uh, a dose of LSD with, uh, with nothing. The double blind has to do with the fact that the raters shouldn't know which condition, which condition people are in. Yeah. So, so I knew though that um, the normal way that FDA designed studies was not going to work. And so we engaged in this eight-month process, which could take longer, sometimes shorter, but it's called the special protocol assessment process. And that's where you negotiate every aspect of the phase three design and all the other studies that they want to see. And the goal is to get an agreement letter, which we did. And this agreement letter means that the FDA agrees with our methodology. They can no longer challenge the methodology or our statistical analysis plan. And they will approve the drug if we get statistically significant evidence of efficacy in both of these studies if we have no new safety problems and if the data is gathered properly. And so that really was something that um, I felt was essential, even though it delayed everything, is that we come to agreement with the FDA. And that's where we uh, recognized and they recognized that the double line isn't going to work. And so they said that, but it would be better to do therapy with inactive placebo versus therapy with uh, full dose MDMA and that we had to have what's called random assignment, which everybody would do, you know, that part's easy. You get everybody yeah. similarly motivated and they meet the same characteristics, but then we had to do exactly what you said. We had to have independent raters that were blind to the condition that the subjects were in. And we had to have a pool of them. We had over 20 of them from mostly trained by the Boston VA. And they did all these ratings about the severity of PTSD um, online in these hour long interviews for the, CAPS, the clinician administered PTSD scale. So the, the FDA said that that, that would be the um, design that they would approve. And the design had um, 42 hours of therapy. And we use a male female therapy team, not always, occasionally two women, occasionally two men, but it's three MDMA sessions, each lasting eight hours, separated by one month apart. And then within that, there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. The first three for preparation uh, to build the therapeutic alliance to help the patients um, really develop a trust in the therapist, help the therapist understand the patient, to train them, uh, to prepare them for what MDMA would do. And then we have three 90-minute integrative psychotherapy sessions after each MDMA session because it's about what you bring back from the session and how do you change your baseline and how do you learn how to do this kind of difficult emotional processing without the drug? That's what we're, the goal is to try to make it so people don't need microdosing every day or don't need any kind of you know daily thing. We get to the root problem. So the other part of that is that we needed to work with the most uh, difficult cases because of the stigma of MDMA and psychedelics in general. And also because it's labor intensive. So the economics work out better, of course, if you work with the more severe people. So the first study was severe PTSD. And people had PTSD um, on average uh, 14 years, but one third had PTSD over 20 years. 
uh, a bunch of the ones that were the veterans had PTSD shorter amounts of time. But um, we enrolled people who had previously attempted suicide. Um, we had uh, about a third of the people had what's called positive behavior, which means they either had tried to kill themselves and it didn't work, or they had like uh, bought a rope and thought about hanging themselves or gone to a bridge and thought about jumping off or, you know, something in the direction of actually trying to kill yourself, not just thinking about it, but positive behavior. We had around one third that, that were in those conditions. Um, 90% of the people that had PTSD also had depression. Um, the one thing that we didn't have, and, and this was uh, frustrating to me, but it was uh, sort of imposed on us by the FDA, is that we, we could not work with people initially that had a diagnosis of both PTSD and substance use disorder. Okay. They, they had to have had two months of uh, detox and, and not have a diagnosis of substance use disorder. But in future studies, I think we should be looking at people that are uh, substance abusers as well, because uh, there, there was a study by Dr. Ben Sessa mm -hmm. in England, uh, alcohol use disorder uh, with MDMA assisted therapy. And what he found is that most of these people were running away from trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were running into alcohol. And mm -hmm. if you help them process the trauma, then they don't need to run away into the alcohol. So anyway, we, we have severe PTSD um, with comorbid depression in 90% of the people with people on the, uh, you know, one third attempted, uh, had positive behaviors. And what we demonstrated was really remarkable. We, we published this in uh, May, 2021 in Nature of Medicine. Yeah. And what we showed is, uh, first off, that of those people that got uh, therapy without M MDMA, therapy with inactive placebo. So as I said, it's 42 hours of therapy. There's three MDMA sessions, mm -hmm. one month apart. And to, to talk, to get more into this idea that are we producing durable change? Our primary outcome measure is two months after the last experimental session. And in general, it's about five weeks after the last final integrative session. So it's not like in the psychedelic afterglow the week after or, yeah. or anything like that. It's two months. And then we have to do like six months to a year longer follow-ups for insurance companies because uh, unless it's durable, they won't pay for it. But what we showed is that in the group that got the therapy with inactive placebo in this new therapeutic approach, 32% uh, no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. Yeah. which was pretty remarkable because these are people that have gone through therapy, gone through medications in, in almost all cases. Um, and still one third of them were able to um, no longer have a diagnosis of PTSD. However, you add MDMA and now it's 67%. Two thirds. Yes. So it's more than twice as many. Now there's another measure of response, which is called a clinically significant um, reductions of symptoms. So what that means is that you're, uh, you know, there's certain numerical cutoffs on the caps, but what, what it means is that your symptoms have changed sufficiently so that you're able to do things that you weren't able to do before. You're, you're not as plagued by nightmares and intrusive thoughts and oh, okay, yeah. hypervigilance, things like that, but, but you still qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, we had 21% in that group as well. So you add, and they're still called responders. And over time, they've started a process. Their symptoms are going down. So we had 88% responders and 12% non-responders. One of the critical things that we need to do going forward is to try to figure out ahead of time who is likely to respond and who is not likely to respond. Because mm. if we can figure that out, and right now we don't have such a good idea okay. about that, but again, from the insurance companies, if they can tailor their support to the people that we predict are more likely to get better, then it's clearly worth it. Mm -hmm. And if we can find out those people that are not likely to get better, maybe mm -hmm. there's other therapies that work with them, or maybe there's preliminary work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But in any case, we had 88% uh, uh, response mm -hmm. rate, which was... Now, there's another way to look at things in terms of effect size. And effect size is a statistical measure to try to compare results from across different studies, even though they're not head-to-head -head comparisons. So an effect size of one means that your results are one standard deviation from the norm, which is substantial. 
And the FDA approves drugs with 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 uh, effect size. These are considered low. You're starting to get medium with 0.5 and 0.7 and above is considered large. Yeah. You know, so one standard deviation from the norm is quite something. Yes. So what we had, there's two different ways to look at uh, effect size. One is what's called placebo subtracted. That's the normal way where you compare you, you, the results that you got from your test, you subtract the results from the placebo group, and then that's what's left is sort of the effect of your intervention. Mm -hmm. However, um, we don't really have a placebo that's inactive. We have therapy, mm -hmm. which is which very, is very active. active, but an inactive placebo. So we had a 0.9 effect size. Yeah when we do placebo subtracted, which is remarkable. It's astonishing. However, when you look within subjects, right. because everybody's really going to get both therapy and MDMA, mm -hmm. that was 2.1. Yeah. Two standard deviations it's, from the norm. It's absolutely unheard of. So therapy yeah. and MDMA creates, as opposed to nothing, creates a 2.1. Uh, effect size, the, yeah. the Cohen's D or whatever that that you know that yes, that, exactly. that little thing That's, is. Uh, it's uh, the, the the importance here for people who don't understand statistics is that it's astronomical. The the best therapy treatments for trauma as, uh, right now have effect sizes about 0.8 to one. These are large effect sizes. This is 2.1. Yeah. Now th there's another way to look at it. This I haven't mentioned statistical significance. So. Statistical significance is um, considered to be um, if you have one in 20 or less chance that it's random, and that's 0.05, so like a nickel out of a dollar or, you know, 0.05. So, you know, uh, um, statistical significance of one means it happens every single time, mm. you know, and there, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's, um, but 0.05 means that there's a one in 20. Um, sense that um, that it's random and the FDA has a measure called um, robust and that's point zero 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 one one in a thousand and if, if you're so so I'll go back one sentence you, you generally need two statistically significant studies mm -hmm. each 0 0.05 mm -hmm. each one in 20 mm -hmm. that it's random and you multiply the probabilities together so you have to have if you have two successful studies, each with 0.05 or better, you have at least a, a, only a one in 400 chance uh -huh. that it's random. Yes. And on the basis of that, you get approval. Mm -hmm. 0.001 is one in a thousand. So if you manage to get statistical significance of 0.001, you're permitted to ask the FDA to approve the drug on the basis of just one phase three study instead of mm -hmm. two, because 0.001, one in a thousand is is more is rare, more rare. It's pretty much for sure kind of an idea. Yeah, but but what we had was 0 0.0001, mm -hmm. one in 10,000 10, chance yeah. that it was random. Mm -hmm. It was just astonishing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then uh, none of this would really matter if the safety profile was terrible. Mm -hmm. So there are acute side effects um, that people have much more with the MDMA than with the uh, placebo, uh, muscle tension, sweating, Various things, but these are transient, non-serious uh, side effects. Mm -hmm. um, we did have um, one woman in the study tried to kill herself twice, mm -hmm. and another woman had such severe suicidal ideation mm -hmm. that she um, checked herself into a hospital not to kill herself. Mm. And it turned out that both of these women were in the placebo group. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we had so none no of that MDMA, in the MDMA no group. MDMA group, yeah. Just regular yeah. therapy. Yeah, we had no cardiovascular problems in the MDMA group. Um, so the, the safety profile was, was excellent. Um, and based on all of this, we actually went to the FDA and we said we would like to apply for a new drug application on the basis of just this one phase three study mm -hmm. because it was one in 10,000 chance it was random. And the FDA said no. We're, we're not going to let you do that. We're, we're fairly persuaded about the uh, efficacy, but we want more data on safety. All right. So the, the first phase three study 
published in Nature Medicine in May 2021. Um, at the end of the year, the journal Science, uh, which is Science and Nature are the two top scientific journals in the world, um, they end up uh, creating a list of the top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the prior year. Mm. So in December 21, we were notified that our paper in Nature Medicine was one of the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs Incredible. of the year. Incredible. It was it was phenomenal, but but it's not just for us. What what what, it, what we really understood is that we are the leading edge of uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy research. Mm -hmm. You know, we're the only group that has completed phase three right. studies. Ketamine is approved by Johnson and Johnson in terms of Spravato, but that was mm -hmm. approved without therapy mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And the better ketamine clinics are combining ketamine with therapy because you get better results. You don't need as much ketamine, so. It's not so good for the pharma company, but it's better for the patients, better for the therapist. Um, so what, what we were understanding is that um, as the leading edge of the psychedelic assisted therapy, that science awarded this to us because the results were great, but also because this is sort of bringing forth uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. All right. So now September 14th of 2023 is when we published the results of our second phase three study right. in nature medicine also. And we changed it a little bit. So this one was moderate to severe, not just severe. Because if we had done this severe PTSD only, it might be only approved by FDA for severe PTSD. So we wanted to broaden it oh, out. Yeah. And so we had around three quarters of the people were severe PTSD and one quarter was moderate PTSD. Um, the, the other big thing that happened in our second phase three study was racial diversity mm -hmm. that did not happen first study. I, I was very naive. And since we are working with a lot of veterans and since the military is a, is 40% of color and these units are very cohesive. And I figured since we're going to get a bunch of, uh, you know, white veterans volunteering, I figured that their, you know, minority brothers in arms would volunteer as well, but that didn't happen. Mm. We got zero. And I didn't realize how much distrust there is in the medical system by African-Americans um, and that we also realized that in order to really generate more volunteers from minority groups, we need to train more therapists from minority mm. groups. So we, we did that. And then in our second phase three study, um, we were very um, fortunate uh, the way that we were able to um, preferentially enroll people of color to try to get you, uh, you know, racial diversity. So um, we, we did way, way better in our, our second phase three study in terms of uh, uh, racial diversity. Um, and what we discovered again is that the statistics in our uh, second uh, phase three study were phenomenal. Also, the paper reported point that there was less than 0 0.001. Um, actually, it was 0 0.004. So it was four chances yeah. in 10,000, <laughs> one in 200. One in 2,500, um, that it was random. Um, the um, therapists, I think, learned a fair amount from working with MDMA in the first study. And many of the therapists talked about how their work with MDMA improved their ability to be a therapist even without MDMA, that they're less worried about uh, difficult emotions and more know how to support people with different emotions. And so in part, it's because of that. I think in part, it's because of moderate to severe instead of just severe. But we had about uh, almost 50%, around 49% of the people that got therapy without MDMA no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. That's, that's spectacular. So this is remarkable. And, you know, over 90% of the people understood for sure that they had gotten the placebo. There was a few con people that were confused. Mm -hmm. um, but... When you add MDMA, now it was even better also, it was 72%. Same, same result, more or less. That more or less the same result, mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, just sl slightly better. So uh, the results were out outstanding. Um, um, the effect size, um, because the placebo group did so well, was a little bit lower, because when you do the mm -hmm. placebo subtracted, that was 0.7. Um, and the effect size with the in-groups was um, about um, 
uh, 1.8 no, or so. Still, st still, still phenomenal. Humongous. Still phenomenal. Um, and then we had no attempted suicides in any group. And this was where we mm. had the 1.9% uh, dropout rate in the MDMA mm. group. Um, and so we also um, had completed a, uh, a follow-up to the first phase three study mm. and demonstrated that the results were durable. This is six months to a year or more in terms of the, the duration of the, that follow-up. So the chance that our results are random, the way, the way I described it before, if it's yeah. 0.05, 1 in 20, and then 1 in 20, you multiply, it's 1 in 400. Um, because our statistics were so amazing, we have 1 in 25 million chance right. that it's random. Right. There we go. So we are anticipating, and the safety profile was, was excellent. And as we demonstrated in our first phase three study, you know, treating people without MDMA, you know, the, the, they're more prone to suicide. They're more prone to high stress illnesses. So we're in a situation where we are uh, very hopeful that when we submit the data to the FDA, that it will be more a question of how it gets approved. What are kind of the regulations? What do they say about mm -hmm. the training of the therapists? Um, you know, it's only going to be administered under direct supervision of therapists. It's not going to be prescribed to the patient to do on their own. It'll never be like that. They'll only be directly under supervision of therapists and the therapists have to be yeah. trained in the method that we used in phase three. Yeah. And, and, and MAPS, MAPS will have an exclusivity in, in the States. So what's going to happen if it's approved in, in the States? What you're referring to is a program called data exclusivity. So that was signed into law in 1984 by Ronald Reagan. And that was to promote, uh, provide incentives to develop uh, drugs that were off patent because pharma companies spend a lot of money and they, they want a patent protection where they charge monopoly prices until it becomes mm -hmm. generic. So MDMA was invented by Merck in 1912 and it's in the public domain. Um, MDMA was used for PTSD in the middle to late seventies before I even learned about MDMA in 1982. So we did not invent MDMA for PTSD. So we don't have any use patents. So uh, surprisingly, I missed it, even though I did my PhD at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government on the FDA and got it in 2001. By the way, you did that PhD just to strengthen your mission to bring MDMA therapy. That's a little si sidekick yes. uh, project for you to... Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Yes, you did. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I did get my uh, master's and PhD from the Kennedy School in order to figure out how to maneuver oh through gosh. the politics to get the wow. science. That's commitment. Um, yeah, it was um, it was necessary because everything else was blocked and the, the science was being blocked by the politics. So I understood that I really did have to study the politics. Um, but I missed this whole idea of data exclusivity. You know, I got my PhD in 2001. I, my, um, one of my um, committee members was the former lawyer for the FDA who wrote the textbook, Food and Drug Regulation, that's, that's used at Harvard Law School, that he teaches at Harvard Law School. But pharma companies use patents. And so they hardly ever, this data exclusivity was kind of ignored. And so it wasn't until 2014 that I discovered that there is such a thing as data exclusivity. So that's when I realized I could have a different story to donors, which is if you can give us the money to make this into a medicine and help us commercialize it, then we will have an engine of income to fund further research that I'm not going to be constantly asking people for money that will have earned income if we succeed in making MDMA into a medicine for PTSD. So the data exclusivity is five years. Now, you get an extra six months of data exclusivity if you do pediatric studies. So the FDA, people are surprised to hear this, but the FDA is requiring us, if they grant us a prescription approval for adults, which are 18 years and older, then we are required, we must study adolescents with PTSD, 13 to 17 year olds. And if that works, we have to work with seven to 12 year olds. And you get this extra six months data exclusivity. I, I do think it will work great in children. And I think from a uh, business perspective, from an insurance coverage perspective, they look at um, 
one of the measures is quality adjusted life mm-hmm. years, qualities. But what that means is the younger you help someone, the more years they have to benefit. And so the more likely insurance companies can justify paying for treatments for younger mm-hmm. people. You know, it, it's hard to justify big expenses for people that are about to die in a year or so. So anyway, we, we are being required to do this and we get five, uh, an extra six months. So there's five and a half years and the data exclusivity period has to expire before the FDA can review the application from a generic manufacturer. And it takes them about a year or so, or sometimes more to review an application. So I think we might have in the neighborhood of six and a half years or so um, of this data exclusivity. In Europe, it's 10 years data exclusivity. So we've created the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, and that is our pharmaceutical arm. So to get around to your question, the the MAPS, the nonprofit, um, is, is not the pharmaceutical company. The pharmaceutical company, we wanted to innovate not just in psychedelic assisted therapy, but how do we market a pharma drug? And when you do it with maximizing profits, it's profits over people. And that's a big problem of capitalism in general. It's about profit maximization, all these externalities people don't count. So the modification of capital that's been capitalism is the map is the public benefit corporation, where you put public benefit uh, above profit. You, you don't have to maximize profits. And so we created the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. And so that is the pharmaceutical arm. That's going to be the one that uh, negotiates with the FDA. Uh, and so that that's the our corporate structure. For strategic reasons, and also because, uh, you know, some of the world's best uh, PTSD researchers are in Israel because I'm Jewish and was raised to make a contribution to Israel. Um, we did our phase three studies with uh, sites in Israel, Canada, and the U.S. And what both uh, the Ministry of Health in uh, Israel and Health Canada have indicated to us is that they want to wait to see what the FDA does. And only after the FDA, if the FDA approves, then in a couple months afterwards, we think we'll get approval in Israel. And they might just straight up Canada approve it as without well. any additional things after FDA, right? Well, the same data package that we uh-huh. submit to the FDA, will, you know, which includes data from people in Canada and in Israel, can be submitted to both Health Canada and the Ministry of Health in Israel. And if the FDA approves that these other countries are, are likely to, to do the same. Are you going to be submitting that? Or it's just Health Canada will pick it up on their own? And, and uh... No, no, no. We, we will okay. be submitting that. Yeah. And then not only that, but we, we're, we're wanting to okay. go to Europe. And to globalize. So, so there, there's, when I speak about globalization, then I should talk about two different things. One is um, there's humanitarian projects in places that are uh, devastated by trauma that generally don't have any money or don't like, look what's happening. Um, for example, all the Palestinians that are being traumatized, uh, uh, you know, innocent Palestinians caught in the crossfire between Hamas and Israel Um you know, uh, we're talking about trying to uh, train therapists in Lebanon. So th- there's all sorts of countries of the world that are too poor to really pay for therapy, and they've got large amounts of uh, trauma. Um, so that will be our sort of humanitarian projects. And then the other projects are the ones where there's national health insurance, where there's a reasonable return. So the Benefit Corp, the 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 for-profit public benefit pharmaceutical company will focus on Australia and uh, expanding to potentially Brazil and Europe, Israel, Canada. And then MAPS, the nonprofit, will do humanitarian projects. We just did some trainings for Ukrainian mm-hmm. therapists. We had a training wow. in Sarajevo. It was amazing. We had Bosnian, Serbian, Armenian, Polish. Uh, we had a woman from Lebanon, uh, Czech Republic, Italy. Uh, and it, it, it felt like a mini UN of people whose countries had killed, fought and killed each other, but the healers were mm. kind of united yeah. in their effort to work together too. You know, I went to the Denver conference. I actually haven't experienced this sort of sense of energy for a while, you know, in such a huge crowd, 11 and a half thousand people. 
it's been just amazing. I did some interviews connecting with random people and such an uplifting experience, such a, such a hopeful experience if this energy could spread. Oh, I should say, though, that, that we, we actually ended up with uh, 12,400 people. Oh, my gosh, Rick. Yes, Rick, this <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, this is, well, let me then ask you a question. You know, it was a party of one 37 <laughs> years later or so. Right. You throw a party and 12,500 yeah. people show up. How do you handle the growth, the speed, especially the speed of growth within the last few years? I think it's been so exponential. What is this experience like for you? Well, it's um, in some parts, we've been hurt by our own success. So, for example, I never would have predicted hundreds of for-profit psychedelic companies. I mean, there were so many political obstacles and so mm -hmm. much difficulty that that we would ever reach a point where investors would put in billions of dollars into psychedelic companies. I never would have predicted that. But consequently, that made it more difficult for us to raise donations because a lot of our donors are, why, why should I donate anymore? Look at all these people that are trying to invest. Now, a bunch of these early companies have gone broke, so a lot of people have lost mm -hmm. a lot of money yes. in uh, psychedelic companies. but. Uh, I never would have predicted that. And the fact that we are in, um, there's research with MDMA on the way or starting in about seven or eight BA facilities around the country. Mm. It's just, you know, mind bugging. I started in 1995 to try to get, um, I offered money and therapists to people inside the VA to, tr mm. to, to demonstrate the value of MDMA. And it kept getting turned down and turned down. It wasn't until 2021, October 12th, that the first veteran received MDMA inside the VA by VA inside therapists. The VA. Okay. It took over 25 years to reach that point of trying, but now that's happening. So in some ways, I'm, I walk around with a, a sort of a state of perpetual astonishment mm. that things are, have actually progressed. But, but the mm. other thing I, I am worried about with all this, um, you know, stock market and you know, people uh, talking about, um, you know, publicly traded companies. And, you know, I, I hope that the the way that this sort of gets mainstreamed, I, I first off hope that there's not going to be another backlash. You know, I, I woke up to LSD and the value of LSD in 1971 and 72 after the backlash in the Controlled Substance mm -hmm. Act of 1970 and wiping out research. I learned about MDMA in 82 before the backlash, although when I learned about it, it was both Adam, the name for it as a therapy drug, but also ecstasy as a party drug. So it was clear that it would be squashed eventually. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to this idea of backlash. And right mm -hmm. now, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say this, but I don't actually see where the backlash is going to come from. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, we may be taken by surprise, but at the same time, I, I'm pretty hopeful that we will be able to uh, integrate psychedelics into medicine, into psychiatry, into psychotherapy, into the culture in a way that does not produce a backlash. So that, mm -hmm. that's where I'm saying that um, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not celebrating right. yet. Yes. You know, we'll see what happens with uh, FDA approval and then we'll see what happens with insurance coverage. And then shortly behind that right. is going to be psilocybin. So you you continue being focused on the mission. You've uh, you you kind of like yeah. you have an interesting sort of uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to define you in any way. But the way I <laughs> perceive you is you have this sort of um, extreme focus on service and on your mission. Mm. This is like service. Yeah. You actually want to do good, but you also have this additional character of being like really into pleasure. Yes. Yes. Well, I think um, that's another way not to burn out. That's another I, I way mean, not to burn out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, well, and it's also why we have a dual strategy. So the, the idea, what are we really after? It's um, mass mental health and the spiritualized humanity. Mm -hmm. We have brilliant minds. We have uh, the ability to solve all of our problems, to have, you know, renewable energy and food for everybody. But we do not have the emotional and spiritual capacity to deal with our technology. And so we're climate change, we're killing species, we're altering the face of the earth. We have incredible weapons of mass destruction that are, you know, we're just so lucky they haven't gone off yet um, since they did go off at the end of World War II. Um, 
and and so we need to really accelerate this uh, emotional and spiritual development to cope with the brilliance of our minds, mm. which has been separated from our humanity and from our morals. Mm. The the other part of this is that there's a, a new mission that we've had to say. So the mission since uh, 37 and a half years is make MDMA into a medicine. Mm. Now it looks like that's going to be a um, good chance that's going to be accomplished. So the new mission is a world of net zero trauma mm. by 2070. And it doesn't mean no trauma, but it means there's two kinds of trauma, both trauma that happens to people and then also unresolved trauma gets passed on from generation to generation in multi-generational trauma through epigenetic mechanisms that Rachel Yehuda and other researchers are starting to identify. So I, I think that this idea of net zero trauma is just when are we no longer adding to the burden of trauma on humanity, then we can start going net negative. But I do think it'll take another, uh, you know, 40, 50 years, something like that. So that's why we picked 2070. Right to get to this point and so that that is the new animating vision it's one of it it's a yeah wonderful vision and some people listening they might think that this is idealistic to say so so i wonder whether whether we could do like a quick few questions about mdma therapy to again sure. enlighten people yeah. a little bit more about what we're talking about here so one yeah. thing is i heard you say that you believe that mdma will be the most popular drug in the world and i i think that um that MDMA therapy will become the most popular therapy. Would you think that that's going to be the case? Or I think there's a good chance for that. Yeah, MDMA is one of the most popular recreational drugs, you know, illegal drugs in the mm -hmm. world. Um, and I, I think that it's got, you know, remarkable therapeutic potential that, mm -hmm. that we need to investigate in all different kind of applications. Um, and so I, I think that, our, our mission is both on the one hand, you know, drug development through regulatory systems, through the FDA to be covered by insurance. The other is drug policy reform for people to have these experiences on their own in a way where we teach about peer support. We teach about, um, you know, how to make sure you have peer drugs and, and what kind of harm reduction, what things can happen. So I, I think that this um, idea of, net zero trauma by 2070 is sort of aspirational. Mm -hmm. um, there's estimates that there'll be about um, uh, a billion climate refugees by 2050. Mm -hmm. If that's true, the stress on the world is going to be enormous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to really accelerate people's ability to handle stress mm -hmm. and fear and, and work through their traumas mm -hmm. so that we can find ways to work yeah. together. And uh, quickly, like what are the, some of the uses for MDMA therapy that you from all your experience, not just from this research, but from all your, all your knowledge of MDMA therapy? So we've done uh, small phase two pilot studies with um, social anxiety mm -hmm. in autistic adults. Mm -hmm. I, I think social anxiety is something that MDMA can um, potentially be uh, very effective for. And we have early preliminary data that we need to expand. Nice. Uh, we've done work with people that um, have anxiety about dying. MDMA can be helpful there. Uh, Dr. Ben Sessa has done a really good study in England with people with alcohol use disorder alcohol, with, uh, uh, and discovered that when you give them MDMA, they've got unresolved trauma that they're running away from. You help them resolve the trauma. Then. Um, I think that the potential of MDMA for um, couples therapy right. is remarkable, remarkable, and it's something that we should, should be investigating. Um, we have tried to explore this idea of uh, MDMA and ayahuasca for um, conflict resolution. Mm. So th there's been as some small groups of Israelis and Palestinians doing ayahuasca and MDMA together. Mm -hmm. And so we want to sort of build on that. Um, I think, as I said, 90% of the people that we work with with PTSD also have depression. Mm. But we've not done anything with people with depression without PTSD. And that could be kind of, a, quote, a different sort of disease. Mm. But I think MDMA uh, should be explored for depression. Mm. Um, there have been anecdotal reports. Eating disorders, I think MDMA can be excellent for eating disorders. And what we haven't really talked about is uh, the whole mind-body connection. MDMA really opens up this sort of mind-body connection. So there's diseases like Crohn's or irritable bowel syndrome or fibromyalgia um, that are kind of 
thought of as physical illnesses with a psychological component. component yeah. So, so far we've just been looking on psychological things like PTSD, depression, social anxiety, uh, this or that. Uh, but I think um, looking at more of these mind-body illnesses, I think will be a big area of research for MDMA going forward. Mm. Uh, but we say MDMA-assisted therapy. So what is therapy good for? All sorts of things. So MDMA can be helpful for a therapy for, I think, a wide range of clinical indications. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's wonderful. Uh, this is a big question for me, and I don't know the answer, uh, but you might. Uh, how about tolerance and the multiple uses of, uh, of full-dose MDMA uh, with time and all that? What could you say about that and about therapeutic effectiveness with multiple uses? Yeah. Well, sometimes we in our therapies, we, we've given people up to six sessions. So th there seems to be no diminishment of the effect um, that has been reported. Okay. Now, the, a lot of people that use ecstasy a fair amount have talked about the effects do diminish over time. And it's been true for me also. Mm -hmm. So when I take MDMA now, having taken it over a hundred times since over the last 41 years, so not that much actually, but, um, you know, it's not quite the same as the initial experiences. So that's unlike cannabis or LSD or psilocybin. If you don't take them for a while, when you take them again, it feels like it's the first time. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit different than that with MDMA in a way people think about this. It, it can be a good thing in the sense that, um, the drugs you get dependent on or addicted to are the ones that you get a tolerance for, and then you just take higher and higher right. doses. All right. But with MDMA, people can get a tolerance after a substantial number of, of sessions, but then when you take higher and higher doses, you get more of the speedy effects. You don't get the open hearted effect. So you don't really see people that have like decades of dependence on MDMA the way people do on cocaine yes. or, um, you know, anxiety medications or opiates or things like that. So um, I think in, in the amount of time that people will get MDMA in therapy, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a real significant factor significant in this idea of the diminishment. So there is some effect. diminishment, but but still, it could still be therapeutically useful and it's not addictive and all that. hundred times, you know, some people might yeah. think that's huge. Over 41 years, though, so it's once every six months, which is kind of a, on average, which is kind of a reasonable yeah. reasonable schedule for this for this drug, yeah? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's... Um, there's different challenges as you get older, as you go through the lifespan. It's not like, you know, oh, okay, I, I took this when I was 21 and now I feel great. You know, well, different challenges happen at 30, you know, the different. So Eric mm -hmm. Erickson talked about the eight stages of life and the different challenges at each stage. So I, I found it useful throughout the lifespan. And I think uh, I will continue to find it useful uh, nice. as well. Nice. And uh, could you speak very briefly about uh, the importance of therapy versus versus the MDMA yeah. uh, in other contexts. Well, when when um, uh, well, let me give a, a good example. So, 1984 was the first time that I worked with a PTSD patient, and I talked about this in my TED talk. So, if anybody wants to go to my TED talk, you'll see this. But but um, this was 1984, and this woman um, who was a uh, girlfriend of a friend of mine. I didn't know her. I'd never met her, uh, but they took MDMA together. And um, during that experience, it was supposed to be a romantic experience. She remembered prior sexual abuse and it so destabilized her. And she, she had been previously, you know, violently raped, previously been in medication, been in uh, mental hospitals, uh, you know, to try to support her. Um, and she'd found some balance, but uh, this MDMA, um, brought up these painful emotions in a way that she wasn't capable of handling it. And so she checked herself in the hospital not to mm -hmm. kill herself. And after a week, she got out. And she had the same medications and all of this, and it wasn't really uh, wasn't something that she thought would work. So she was more suicidal when she got out than when she got in. And my friend asked if I would work with her, and I talked to her, and I said, if you agree not to commit suicide when we work together, I'll work with you. And, and she did end up getting better. So this is a story of MDMA initially making somebody worse 
but only when it was used in a therapeutic mm-hmm. setting where she was encouraged to feel the feelings did it help right. get better. So the negotiations we have with the FDA is, again, that it's about the therapy more than it's about the drug. The drug is a tool. Gul Dolan, who I just had on, on the podcast, uh, and she discusses her Gul Dolan's theory of uh, reopening of the critical period. Yeah. A kind of a beginner's mind, child's mind. So when you when you're actually in that kind of state, there is a, a possibilities are both directions. There can wonderful and healing things can happen, but there are also uh, significant risks when you're in such an open state. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that I think, um, again, is pe- I, I do think it should be legal for people to do on their own yeah. without therapy if they want to. But I think when you talk about insurance coverage, it should be, you know, as an FDA drug, it should be only combined with therapy and that the yeah. drug can, uh, it's best to think about it as a tool and, and a tool right. can be used well or poorly. Right. And we, we yeah. want it to be used well uh, with therapy. Well, Rick, thank you so much for all your work and all the all the goodness that you bring into the world. I, I'm just so glad to um, speak with you because I, I really think public education is where it's at. We really need to help educate people, and uh, and this is a great opportunity for that. So thank you for this opportunity. <laughs>